Welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast, bringing you juicy combos with thought leaders discussing the wild world of parenting. A tantrum is an intense emotional expression and it starts in the toddlerhood years because they want something, they cannot get it or they feel frustrated. I tell my parents that tantrums are the surface level of behavior, but there is so much more underneath the surface. And underneath that surface is all the needs that they're expressing through that tantrum. That clip was from our guest of the show today, Marcella Collier. I'm Jason Berlin, the host of the Elevate the Vibe podcast, and with me is my beautiful co-host, Katie Berlin. The real, true OG host of the Elevate the Vibe podcast. OG, the original gangster, is that what you're referring to? Old granny. No, I was going to say, not the old granny, right? <laughs> more, more old granny. Uh, Sam's been getting busy. He's like two and a half. Come on. Oh, oh, that is, that's like, that's so wrong. I so can't even... too soon? <laughs> can't even think about that. So we're recording this. It is Saturday, October 31st. It's Halloween that we're recording this. We know this episode will air on Wednesday, but tonight is a full moon. We are baking a pumpkin cheesecake right now. First time ever making it. I think I put a little too much butter in it. Said no one ever. Uh, That's what I said. (laughs) We'll see how it turns out. I probably will still eat the entire thing. I am still (laughs) giantly nine months pregnant with baby expected to arrive any day now. So hopefully tonight's full moon only brings treats. Well, not that baby wouldn't be a treat, but like (laughs) (laughs) only brings treats in the form of pumpkin cheesecake versus a baby. I'm not, I'm not quite ready yet. Not quite ready. Stay in there a little bit longer there. Yes. Still need to wrap up a few life and and work scenarios before I can fully mentally relax and be prepared to welcome this baby in the world. She is uh, radically kicking me right now, so she might have (laughs) other plans besides what I'm sharing, but... She hears you trying to make plans and she's already trying to thwart them. Yeah, she's going to be a Scorpio baby. If anybody Mm. is familiar with Zodiac, we should do like astrology for kids. We should do an episode on astrology. Yeah, mm-hmm. child astrology. Miss Cleo, baby edition. Oh, whoa. <laughs> but yeah, uh, potential little Scorpio baby here. So we would have two water signs, myself and uh, Scorpio baby. and Two fire signs? N- Is Sammy a fire sign? No. no, Sammy's earth. Earth, wind, water, heart? Sammy's earth and you are fire. Oh, okay. Yeah, we are just missing air. But I think actually Randy might be air. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he's got a lot of air up there. We're covered. We're we're all covered. (laughs) (laughs) But outside of astrology, there are so many different ways that you can parent and look at parenting your children. Our guest of the show today, Marcella Collier, is the founder of the High Impact Club. And I actually found her on TikTok. I do mention this, but she has awesome videos where she teaches parents how to really parent towards their children's needs versus trying to force your children to do what you want. It's really as the parents, it's up to us to make those adjustments for them. Marcella is great in that she has a lot of systems in place for how to deal with meltdowns, how to deal with tantrums and the differences between them. She's got quite a wide breadth of knowledge. And not so much systems, but it's really parenting to what your child's needs are. So maybe our audience has heard of this. There's something called 
the five love languages. Many adults know of those love languages. It's the way that you best respond to certain acts. It could be like gift giving, quality time, acts of service. So there's there's five love languages total. And those also apply to children. And you can parent your children in a way where you appeal to their love language because if you have more than one child, I mean, we only have one right now. The other one, she's letting me know she's here. She's, she's on route. She's kicking. But I'm sure for people that have multiple children, you know that each child is different. They're unique. They have different ways of responding, working in the world. Some may seem more sensitive than others or some may have needed more nurturing than others maybe one is more independent than the other and it's not that as a parent the child is doing something right or wrong but as parents it's our job to adjust and see that in our children and then work with them we have to recognize their behavior and adapt our own behaviors to find solutions and i think we've talked about this before on the show where parenting is really just one huge mirror on ourselves of who we are and marcella she doesn't say that specifically, but she really drives that home. But that's why I'm so cool, because my parents are cool as hell. My parents are cool as hell, but I don't know what the fuck happened to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's introduce our guest to the show today. Marcella Collier is a licensed therapeutic provider and the founder of the High Impact Club. She's a mom of twins, a parent coach, and helps parents switch their mindset to respond according to their children's behaviors with the type of parenting that the child needs. She's the creator of the Parenting with Understanding program that takes parents from, I don't know what I'm doing, I've tried everything and nothing is working, to a place where they correct less, connect more, and respond according to their children's needs. Let's welcome Marcella to the show. All right. Well, Marcella, welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast. We're so excited to have you, and we would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you, Kathy, for inviting me. My name is Marcela. I'm a parenting with understanding coach. I help parents all over the world understand what their children's behaviors mean and how to respond with what their children exactly need. And for reference, I found Marcela on TikTok. So she puts out so much awesome content. At the end of the show, of course, we'll give you the chance to shout yourself out where you are, but there's just so much amazing information that you put out for people. So I have a ton of questions. I cannot wait to get into this with you. So your name on TikTok is High Impact Club. Can you talk everywhere? Everywhere, High Impact Club. Can you talk a YouTube, little bit? TikTok, Instagram, High Impact Club. Talk a little bit about how you came up with that name and just how you started on your path. That was a long time ago that we came up with the name uh, High Impact. High Impact LLC, that's the name of my company. And we started going uh, to schools and training schools on behavior management and bullying. And that's how we started. And then two years ago, I branched out to the parenting, to the parenting piece. Uh, my husband and I, we are therapeutic providers. We've been helping children overcome their behavioral challenges for many years now. And that's my background. And before you had your children, so you have two toddler boys. They're four years old. Um, they're twins, just for reference. And before you had your two boys, you also started down a path of fostering children as well. Can you talk a little bit about that too? 
Okay, so that that's a oh, that's a big story for me because we struggled with fertility for seven years. So that's why we decided to start doing foster care, to start blessing children, and to bless ourselves <laughs> during the process as well. So uh, that's what what we did for so many years, and we had play, we have children in foster care all the way up until. March this year. Oh, wow. 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 Yes. Wow. Yeah. The last one, he graduated because he turned 18. He's doing awesome. Um, and yeah, right now I'm just with the twins and my husband here in the house. So you definitely know about seeing and understanding so many different children in different phases of their lives, understanding their behavior, how to, as a parent, position yourself and have tools that are relevant to you to be able to better parents children and that's really the crux behind what you do it's not so much about how do we fix children's behavior it's as parents how do we fix our behavior so that our children feel supported and they feel independent and can grow up to be successful human beings on their own yeah that's why i said what i do is i help parents understand their children's behaviors not to fix their children's behaviors understand their children's behaviors so they are equipped to respond with what their children need. So we want to talk about, we have a two-year-old son. He's almost two and a half. And then I'm also expecting, so we have another one on the way. Very Congratulations. Thank nice. you. Very soon, most likely next month. So there will be, you know, a whole new dynamic in the house. And anybody who has a toddler or... Even if you don't have a toddler, if you've ever been around a toddler, seen toddlers in action, out and about, one of the star signs that this child is a toddler is their tantrums. Like their, you know, kids have tantrums. They will become defiant. They have better use of words and they just begin to express themselves. So I want to dive into some of the tools and ways that you help to coach and teach parents on how to handle tantrums with children. Okay, before we need to understand what a tantrum really is, a tantrum is an intense emotional expression. And it starts in the toddlerhood years because tantrums are goal-oriented, meaning they want something, they cannot get it, or somehow they feel frustrated, and then they, they have this emotional outburst. I tell my parents that tantrums are just the surface level of behavior, but there is so much more underneath the surface. And underneath that surface is all the needs that they're expressing through that tantrum. Children have five basic needs. Humans have five basic needs. You have it, I have it. And they look to meet those needs the best way they can. And when it comes to little guys, they might not have the insight to understand it and communicate the way that they, that they, that it's in a pro-social way. So they, they do it through behaviors. So they're looking to meet one of those five basic needs. They are the need for belonging, the need for power, the need for freedom, the need for fun, the need for survival. And they do it through behaviors. There is something that I talk to so many parents every single day. And um, many, many parents, like they, they see the surface and, 
and they try to explain it such as, ah, they just want my attention, or it's because it is not the green cup, it's the red cup. So they get really hang up on the thing that the child is demanding during the tantrum. But in reality, what children need and what they want are two separate things. For example, yes, they are demanding the, re the, green, the green cup and not the red cup, but they're really needing power. They really need in the, they really want to have power over the decisions that are taking over their lives, right? Or maybe they are, yes, they are throwing that bedtime tantrum and you might see that what they want is that they don't want to stay, they don't want to stay in bed, but what they really need is independent sleep skills, right? Or you might see that they throw a tantrum once daddy come home and you might think that it is because daddy comes home, but in reality, it might be that he was having separation anxiety, daddy said hi, now he's going to the bathroom to change his clothes, and now he, this child is afraid that daddy's going to disappear again. So how I said the behaviors are just the surface, and what they're demanding is just the surface. When we look beyond the behavior and unveil the need that this child is communicating, that's when we are really going to respond with what our children exactly need. Telling a child that doesn't have independent sleep skills, go back to sleep. I already told you to go back. I already told you, like, what are you doing out here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're now you're not gonna have ice cream tomorrow. Now you're going to a timeout because you're not following this that's not going to solve that need. He needs to be trained on independent sleep skills, just to give you an example. So let's say that there are parents out there and their children are having tantrums. How can the parent begin to identify what the need is that they could address for their child to help get them through that process? Before anything, they need to educate their, themselves in what the, those five basic needs are. They need to know how the need for belonging looks like in their children. They need to know how the need for power looks like in their children and all the other needs, right? And once they're able to recognize how those signs, those, those cues, those things that children tells us, once they're able to recognize those signs, that's when they're able to unveil the need. Let me give you an example. My one of my twins, he had a meltdown. Meltdowns are different than tantrums. Meltdowns are not goal oriented. So he was having a big meltdown because his 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 because or his the thing he was demanding is that he didn't want to brush his teeth. But I really knew that that day I couldn't connect with him because I was working all day in a. In a in something that I'm, I'm, I'm working on for, for October 16th. So I was working all day. He didn't see me. Then my niece was trying to take care of him. My niece is not his primary caregiver. I am his primary caregiver. And now it was time to brush his teeth to go to bed. And he was like, okay, where was mom? And then he threw, he had a big meltdown. If I just see the behavior, I'm like, okay, he's, he's tantruming because he doesn't want to brush his teeth. But because I knew what his need was, because I knew that he was craving connection with me, I was able, able to help him. 
when it comes to meltdowns that the escalation process is, is way slower but at the end of the day he went to sleep happy meaning he, he went to sleep feeling that he was connected with me and relaxed because I was able to unveil that. Now, this is a skill. This is a skill. And I teach that inside the Parenting with Understanding program. I equip parents with the skill to know what need is and how to respond according to the need. But that's the first step to, to gain that skill of knowing how those needs look like in your children. So you're able to see the signs. And what are the five again? Okay, so research says that we have five needs and we're looking to meet those needs through behaviors, even adults. So need number one is the need for power. The need for power is the ability to feel skillful, to feel that you're able. So when children uh, throw a tantrum after they lose a game, they're expressing that need. Telling them, ah, it is not a big deal, it's just a game, it's not meeting that need. Okay, the other one is the need for belonging. So the need for belonging, that's the need for connection, attention, affection. So, uh, so for example, with the same thing, my, my son, he had a meltdown because he didn't have connection from me for an entire day. And I'm his primary caregiver. The other need is the need for freedom. This one is very big in toddlerhood years because when children turn 18 months old, they start recognizing themselves as a separate person from their caregivers. And when they start doing that, they, they discover something that is called control, right? When do you feel free? I feel free over my life when I gain control over my life. So this one is a big one. And this one comes up a lot when it comes to daily routine, because we know they need to brush their teeth. We know they need to go to school or all the things that we know they have to do. As parents, we, try to, we tend to control those things and they feel control and they might throw a tantrum for that need for freedom. A clear example was right before our podcast, it was time to brush teeth. I knew I needed to brush their teeth before coming here. And then Miguel said, no, I'm not brushing my teeth. I was like, oh, need for freedom. It wasn't the need for survival or it wasn't any other need. It was the need for freedom. And I said, okay, Miguel, okay. Miguel, let's, let's choose an activity that we can do right after we brush our teeth. And he said, oh, what about we bounce the fitness ball? I said, perfect, let's do that. And he said, okay, but we bounce it 10 times. I was like, when he told me we bounce it 10 times, that was the confirmation for me that he needed control. I said, okay, we bounce it 10 times. <laughs> We went, we brush our teeth, and then we bounce the ball 10 times. So that's the other need, the need for freedom. And the last need is the need for survival. So the need for survival is, yes, beyond the physical needs, making sure that they eat, that they're fed, that they're fed, that they sleep. Beyond that is feeling safe. Not that they're safe, because they're safe. I mean, we are, we are safe caregivers and we keep them safe, but, but they actually feel safe in their minds. For example, my child, when he had the big meltdown because he didn't have attention and connection from me, he didn't feel safe because it was unpredictable for him. And I did a really bad job beforehand, not preparing him for what was to come for that day. 
if I would have done my due diligence of preparing him that today your my niece is going to watch you and mommy's going to like if, if he would have known what was coming, he wouldn't he wouldn't have felt that unsafe. And and I think I could have prevented that meltdown. What is the difference between a meltdown versus a tantrum? What are some of the signs? So the, the big difference is that tantrums are goal oriented, meaning I want the, for example, the brushing teeth thing, it was goal-oriented. Once I gave him control, he, he was fine. And we went and we brushed our teeth. Meltdowns, they don't, uh, they're not goal-oriented, meaning they don't change upon the audience reaction. Who is the audience reaction? The parent. Uh, if I would have told them, okay, we do this after we brush our teeth, if he's in a meltdown, it's not, it wasn't going, I wasn't going to get a response from him. Two, uh, tantrums are, they change upon the audience reaction. So depending on how you react, the child either de-escalates or he escalates even more depending on the skills that we have. When it comes to a meltdown, it doesn't matter how many parenting skills I have, it's not going to depend on me for him to de-escalate. For example, that meltdown that he had, he was on a meltdown for 45 minutes. 45 minutes, mm. crying, kicking, and screaming on the floor. And I knew I was committed for the long run with him because I knew it was a meltdown, not a tantrum. A tantrum is identifiable in the way that they don't even look at you. You know you, they're not there. They're, they're just, their eyes are lost. They're like in another world. A tantrum, they're very connected to you. They're very like, they. They ch they're very in tune with what you're saying, with what you're doing. A meltdown, they're not in tune with anything you're saying or doing. What helps them calm down is your co-regulation, meaning your warming presence. I kept telling him, you're safe, mommy's here, you're safe. And I, I told him, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know, I, know I, did, I created this, I'm sorry, you're safe, you're safe. And if he allowed him allowed me to at first he didn't allow me to 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 you know touch his face his feet but as he was de-escalating he was allowing me and at the end i put him in bed and then he cuddled me until he fell asleep but that was 45 minutes wow yeah okay like you're saying you're definitely in it for the long haul at that point when it is a meltdown yes and unfortunately if we don't have parenting skills to handle the tantrum, tantrums could turn into a meltdown. Now, if you are with a child who maybe is having a meltdown, how do you understand if a meltdown is a meltdown based on behavior? Or what if the child has like sensory anxiety and something's happening that gives them sensory anxiety that causes like a complete meltdown? For them. That's called sensory meltdown. So sensory meltdowns could, uh, could come from sensory overload, but that could be prevented. If the parent knows that uh, their children have sensory needs, meaning that sensory input from outside is overbearing for their senses and their nervous system, and if they know how to give them breaks, how to do sensory breaks, how to handle those sensory needs, the child would not have to escalate to a meltdown every single time. Might not be every time, but not every single time. 
But if the parent fails to recognize those early signs of sensory anxiety, because before sensory meltdowns, there is always sensory anxiety. If the parent is able to recognize that those signs of sensory anxiety, he will be able to help him prevent a sensory meltdown. So when our son was very young, anytime somebody would have like a big reaction, like a big smile, Aww. like, hi, how are you? He, before, this is even probably before yeah. he could talk or yeah. when he was just starting to talk. He would throw up the pouty face and just start. He, he would him. lose it. He would get really upset and have like this, I would say it was a meltdown mm-hmm. for, for a little baby where like he's hyperventilating and he can't catch his yeah. breath. And he doesn't do that anymore. I mean, yeah. now he doesn't have those sensitivities, but it was the only way that I could think to describe it when he was younger. It was like a sensory overload. It wasn't... It wasn't so much like a sound or a noise, but it was someone's reaction, like someone's big reaction, even if it was positive, would flip him into this like uncontrollable crying scenario. Yes. So the the process is the same. If you know he has that sensitivity, maybe before people come to to your house, you're like, okay, so heads up. Yeah. And then that would prevent those sensory meltdowns. Yeah, just giving the other adults the heads up more so than anything. If you have a little baby, because they're not going to understand. Like a little a little child, a little baby who doesn't speak isn't going to be able to understand. But I've seen that you have a couple different scenarios on ways that you can handle it if your child is of an age where they speak and they do understand how you prep them for something that may cause sensory overload. Can you share some of that? Okay, so I actually did a TikTok about it. So I don't know if you saw the bathtub TikTok. I did. I did see it, yes. (laughs) So one of my twins, not the one that had the meltdown, but the other one, he has sensory needs. So things that touch his body and and taste. So hygiene is a struggle with him. So if I go, okay, it is bath time, and I put him in the bathtub, that's going to be a disaster for him. So I need to do a transition. And that's a really good thing if you have a child that has sensory needs to do. And and there are things that you cannot avoid. I cannot avoid to give him a bath, right? So to look for ways to transition him into that thing. So we played with the water for a little bit. They were not naked yet. We were playing, sink sink, sink and float. And then, then they put one hand and the other hand and then when I knew they, they, all the toys were in the bathtub and they were having a blast and we had a bath with no crying. And the sinker float game was really genius. So if you don't follow Marcella now on TikTok, but you do eventually, you can find the little video where you had like a couple different toys and you filled up the bathtub just with a small amount of water and you would ask both of your sons, if I throw this in, is this toy going to sink or float? So they were participating, they felt involved, they felt like, you know, it, like you said, it's this gradual introduction to yes. what's about the to take place. The same thing when we go to the dentist, I asked the hygienist if they could maybe touch the tools or whatever things mm. they can touch. And then with the, I don't know the name of the thing that does, the thing yeah. that spins really fast, yeah. I yeah. said, ah, can, they, can they feel it in their finger? 
and then they fill in their finger for a few seconds and like that that helps them transition towards the mouth mm. because the mouth is a private area mm-hmm. um and for us i don't want just anybody to put anything in my mouth and they don't understand <laughs> by there yet why they mm. need to have their teeth clean right why somebody is invading their that private area so having that transition as well is really helpful yeah, that's, that's genius. Ge- yeah, genius. Because not just children are afraid of going to the dentist. No, no. <laughs> there are so many adults that are afraid. I just of going went to the dentist. dentist yesterday and I asked them to play with the drills a little bit just so <laughs> I would feel better. So now, when it comes to trying to encourage your children to do something that you want them to do, there are certain phrases as parents that we use all the time, like "No, please do not do that." stop doing that. Can you share more about some of the, maybe the, the negatives of why heading that direction isn't always the best way to communicate? Those are stop words. So just imagine you are, you are in the, in the freeway driving 75 miles an hour and you slam the brakes really, really hard because you need to stop that car as soon as possible. Why is it going to happen to the car? you're going to spin or you're going to get in a car accident. Your children, when they are having behaviors, they are going 75 miles an hour emotionally. And if you slam the brakes with stop words, like stop or enough or uh, don't do this, those are stop words. They're going to spin out of control because they, they feel that they're going like this and then you come at the other side and it's, you're stopping them, you know? So instead of that, I always recommend to use positive language to, and it has the same effect or the same purpose. So instead of saying, uh, we cannot have that right now to say, yes, we can have it after whatever. (laughs) Or instead of like stop, you can say the, the action that you want them to do actually. So Instead of stop touching that painting, you can say, oh, paintings are to look at. Tell me what is the favorite color that you see there? Things like that. Yeah, redirecting Mm -hmm. them. Yeah, I mean, I tell my boy all the time where he's like, I want a muffin. I'll say later, later. And I, but I've said it now to the point where he realized later never is going to happen. So I feel like he's maybe a couple months away from just uh, totally rebelling and be like, no, I don't believe that. Well, in my, in my case, I actually say, okay, let's go to the calendar and let's see when we can have our next ice cream. Mm. And then I help them count the dates. I, not with the twins because they, I mean, for them today or tomorrow is kind of the same thing, no. but with my children in foster care, I used to do that all the time. Okay, let's go to the calendar and let's see when is our next ice cream day, when is our next movie day. And then that really helped them. And then they were like, okay, so it's six days away. And the next day they will go to the calendar. Oh, mm. it is five days yeah. away. So you, like, better, yes. you better not fudge <laughs> any of those appointments or they're going to they're gonna know. Yeah, and you have to follow through. Yeah. If you don't follow through, hmm, yeah. then they're not going to believe you. <laughs> when it comes to the positive, like speaking to your children positively and you give praise, there's a difference between praise and toxic praise. So I want you to oh, talk. You see my TikToks. Of course, <laughs> I watch them. I said I follow you. We've done some studying here. Yeah, right? I want I want <laughs> you to dive into the differences between those. 
Okay, so praise is a really good tool. It, it is actually a behavior modification technique that we use in our therapeutic job, but it could be a double-edged sword if we don't know how to use it. If we use praise, there are two kinds of praise. There is ineffective praise and there is effective praise. <laughs> so effective praise is the one that changes behavior and is the one that attaches a reason to the thing that we're praising for. So the general good job is not going to tell children what they really did good and how they can repeat that action next time, right? So if I, it is different if I say, oh, it, you can say good job, but attach it to something. So if you say, ah, good job on, on picking up your clothes eh, right away, like that, you're going to have more time to play outside. Then they're like, oh, when you attach to a benefit to the praise, that's called effective praise. Now, there is a praise, there is a kind of praise that is toxic praise. And it is when we use it once our children only get results. So if, if we do the good jobs and, uh, and then I'm proud of you every time they get a result and only when they get a result, then they start feeling like, okay, so I, I'm, I'm a good boy or I'm, I'm smart enough only if I get a result. So what happens with that is that they start, they start uh, slowing down their efforts on things that are challenging for them because they're not getting that good job as fast as they want to. I use that with Jason. Yeah. <laughs> she said, you do a great job burning the toast and I don't know what to do. <laughs> no, I said, hey, when you're finished making me breakfast, that'll give you more time to relax. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what? My husband applies that one on me all the time because, you know, he's a behavior modification specialist as well. And then, and then he comes to me and he says, like, if I'm not doing something, he says, ah, thank you for helping me with the twins with this. I'm like, oh, yeah, he needs me to go right now. <laughs> yeah. so he told me thank you before I even do the thing. That's got to be a um, tricky house with two psychologists in there. <laughs> Always. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> I'm a therapeutic provider. Yes. yes. Well, and he's a school counselor uh, and a therapeutic provider as well. Yeah. So with young children, there's ways that you can begin to see and understand what means the most to them. Like in adults, it's called love languages. And in children, it's called love languages. Like what are the various scenarios, if it's touch, if it's pray, like verbal praise, if it's gift giving that gets them to respond and react in the way that you want ultimately. And I think you shared like different ways that you can see what your child's love language is. And for anybody who's unfamiliar with love languages, would you give a little breakdown of the I think it's five total love languages, what they are, and then how to recognize it in your children also. Okay, so Gary Chapman, which is, he's the author of the five love languages, and there is actually a book called The Five Love Languages for Children. So he says that we have five love languages, meaning we have different ways that we want to receive love and we like to uh, give love. And, we, and they're different for, for all of us. So he says that we might like and receive, we might like to receive and give love through gifts or physical touch or acts of service or uh, what is the other one? Uh, words of affirmation. 
And then the last one is uh, quality time. What is yours? Mine is quality time. Mine is acts of service. Okay. And I think Jason's is touch. I like all of them. <laughs> I'll take all of them. <laughs> That's awesome. So when it comes to love languages, this is really important when it comes to helping children de-escalate or cool down because what takes children to the escalation is to feel connected with their caregiver. Now, it could be really tricky because parents might want to do gentle parenting and they might want to connect with their children, but they might not know how their children like to receive love. And I've, I've gotten DMs of people telling me, ah, I, I try to hug them and, and they push me away. Like, how do I do this? How do I help them cool down? I said, maybe physical touch is not what they like to receive. Like, I'm, I'm not a physical touch kind of person. If I'm upset and you want to hug me, I'm going to push you away as well. <laughs> I'm right? the same way. Yeah. I'm like, mm -hmm. no, thank you. I don't need like stay six feet away. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. But yes. I'm a quality time kind of person. So if you're right next to me, just make for me to know that you're there. That's what I need to deescalate. The same way a child, for example, if a child's quality, a quality time, if you're there, at the other side of the spectrum, if you give a child whose quality time is that's the love language, if you give him a timeout, go to your room, that's going to feel, make him feel really disconnected and is going to make the behavior worse. For a child, for example, if the love language is gifts, how can you introduce that to help him cool down? It's not that you're going to give him a gift, but maybe oh, hey, let me hand you, I'm going to leave here a cup of water for you. Or you could set up a calming basket that they could access when they're, when they're upset and they're going to feel the love when they see that calming down basket. A child whose love language is gifts, they might see that calming basket and they, just by seeing it might help them de-escalate because they feel the love that way. I think that our son's love language might be words of affirmation. Mm -hmm. He really loves to know that you're paying attention mm -hmm. to him when he's talking and he'll repeat <laughs> something. Until you repeat it for him. Until yes. you say it back. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that... He'll look be. at me and be like, Apple, Apple. Like, you saw that? Apple? Apple. I'm like, yes, Apple. Yep, yep, that's it. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing it's words of affirmation, yeah. but I don't know. He's still yet. a little young, so... Yeah. Yeah, how do you begin to identify and really nail in and drill in which one it could be for your child. Okay, so I read the book, uh, The Five Love Languages for Children, and then Gary Chapman says that children they are developing their love language. So they, they might be more into one right now, and then the next month they might be into another one until they establish one once they're a little bit older. So right now I have my love language established. I know it is quality time. So children could go back and forth. Now, how do you know what is the love language that they like at the time? The one that they demand the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they're demanding the most the hugs and kisses or not even that, like children that don't know how to ask for a physical affection that well. For example, my children in foster care, they would not come and say, ah, hug me. No, they would come and just sit next to me and kind of like, hmm. like lean towards me. I'm like, ah, he needs a hug. Mm -mm. Oh. 
So for example, a child who was depleted in quality time, that might become their love language when they're older. That, that was my, my case. <laughs> I had loving parents, but they were always, always helping my brother who has special needs. And I was kind of like, you can do it on your own. And yes, I was able to do it on my own, but at the same time, I was depleted in quality time. And that became my love language. When you have siblings, or let's say that your child is around a lot of other children, there's this idea that children need to be able to share. They have to be able to share their toys. They have to be able to share anything. It's, and it's like, okay, you've been able to play with this. Now it's so-and-so's turn to play with it. I'd love for you to talk more about what that role is and when sharing can be incorporated, when it's appropriate and when maybe they're too young and it's not quite time for them to understand what sharing is. Okay, so you could teach it all day long. Do they understand it? It's a different story, right? So research says that children under three, they do, call, they do something called parallel play, meaning they play alongside others, but they don't build play with others. They enjoy being with other kids, but they don't really build play with other kids. If you go to a play date full of two-year-olds, they're just like doing their own thing, but playing together, like one next to the other. If you go to a preschool class, then you see them interacting and building the tower together and, and working cooperatively. So that being said, they're developmentally ready to understand that cooperatively play once they turn three. And before that, if you're a parent and you're trying to get your child, or if you're a parent or a caregiver, or maybe you work in like a daycare setting, if you're trying to get your child to share, they don't understand the concept of that. They just view their toys as their toys and they don't necessarily want to. So if you're forcing it you're like you said you're not creating a positive behavior they just do that because they don't want to get in trouble not because they actually understand sharing is is a nice kind gesture to enjoy something together and it has to do as well with their ability to tell time so for example if you tell my twins Oh, let's wait one minute. They, 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 might not, they might know what one minute is by now. But a two-year-old, a two-year-old one minute, they might be, when is one minute? Am I going to be 100 years old when <laughs> the minute is high? So they, they don't really get it because they have to have that concept of time built inside of them for them to start understanding, taking turns and sharing. Okay, so on this concept of time, this is something that we started to do with our son and maybe we're like completely on the wrong path here. So at night when it's time to clean up toys, head upstairs, go to bed, we'll let him know, okay, five more minutes until it's time to go upstairs. And we understand he doesn't know what five yeah. minutes is, but we started this process as more of a way to transition get, him. Yeah. Transition him. Like you mentioned, if you just tell your child, okay, it's time to stop playing. It's like they're going at 75 miles an hour and hitting a brick wall and saying like, now is the time to stop. And they don't get that de-escalation transition period. 
So we've started this whole, okay, in five minutes, and now what our son does is he uses it against us. Yeah. And he'll say, say, five minutes. Yeah, he'll say, five minutes. Yeah, five. whenever he wants to do anything, he'll just say, five minutes. Five minutes. Like, mm-hmm. so, so that means I don't know if it's working. Five minutes and he repeats it back to you, five more minutes type of thing yeah like he'll play for five minutes and then we'll be like okay it's time to go upstairs and let's get ready let's have our bath and get ready for bed and he'll say five minutes yeah. <laughs> okay so in that case i would just use his two yeah he'll, two, and a half. two and a half yeah. yeah two and a half i would use a transitional activity so instead of that i would use okay if i see him playing with legos one, I will use a, a natural break. Natural break is that to know that he's already disengaging from whatever he's doing, if time is in our side. Once I know that he's kind of disengaging, that he's kind of looking to, to see what else he's going to do, that's the perfect time to transition him to whatever we want. Because if we disrupt independent play, that's, that, we might not be that successful transitioning. So I would wait for a natural break. And then once he had his natural break, then I would transition him with whatever thing he's doing. Oh, uh, do you want to take one of your Legos to, to the bathroom? Okay. Uh, you want the, the red one or the green one? Oh, I want to take the blue one. Okay, take the blue one. And that's how I would handle it with those younger ages. Just creating Even with a, the twins. I do it too. Creating like a more seamless mm-hmm. transition than like a hard stop and and just you know cutting them off from something yeah sometimes my twins go to sleep with their the legos in their hands once they fall asleep i take it away (laughs) that's what happens with jason with muffins no i'm just kidding it's true (laughs) (laughs) there's also this whole process where parents notice this like i know i've noticed this i don't know if jason has noticed this but we do have a caregiver for our child we're um, you know, right now he's not going to daycare. He's at home. And I think a lot of parents may see this or primary caregivers may see this where a child's behavior ends up being worse with the parent. Like they're pushing boundaries more, they're testing boundaries more than with the caregiver or the person who's not the primary caregiver. Can you share a little bit more about that? Why that happens, why that takes place? It all has to do with trust. If you, for the people that are listening to me, if you do foster care, you know exactly what I mean. When you get a child in foster care, the first days, it is, we always, we call it the honeymoon period. They don't do anything, everything is yes, everything, they're like little perfect angels. (laughs) And it is because, and it is not because they, they are, they feel safe and they want to, transition into our house is because they don't feel safe. They don't know how we will react. They don't know that if they express their feelings, how we will handle that. So it is a very, for me, it is a sad period that I always live with my children in foster care. Even the older ones, I've received teenagers and it's the same thing. For the first few days, they don't do anything. It is perfect. And it is because they're they don't know how I will react to their feelings, to their behaviors. Once they start feeling the trust, build the trust that, I'm, that they're trusting me, I'm try, 
like they're, I'm building trust with them. That's when I start seeing more the behaviors and and the and the feelings and, and, and the little things coming up. And that's when I get happy, even though I get behaviors. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm gaining their trust. They're having a meltdown in their bedroom or a tantrum. They might be kicking the door, but I'm like, I'm, I'm gaining their trust. Now they know I'm, I'm a safe adult to entrust me with that. Now, let's talk about our biological kids. We have the natural connection with them. So we don't have to build that trust with them. We already have it. So they, feel, they just feel very safe to express themselves when we are with them. During the, during the day, if they are with a nanny or with a, a niece, for example, they might be holding it in, holding it in if they don't trust that person enough. If they trust that person enough, they will express their feelings. But if they don't trust that person enough, they're going to hold it in until they feel safe. It is like adults as well. Would you express your feelings uh, towards a person that you don't trust? I, I was going to say it's exactly the same thing like if you start a new job. Mm-hmm. And you walk in on the mm-hmm. first day and you, you like look your best, you're acting your best, all of your work is completed and like, you know, you, you want to impress your VP or your, you know, CEO or whoever. So you're like all buttoned up. And then like a year later, you're showing up like an hour late. It was only a day for me on my latest job. The first job, I, I wore a nice collared shirt for my Zoom, my, uh, Zoom meeting. And then the next day, it was just t-shirt and shorts. Right. You're you like, know. all right, I got the trust. <laughs> I got the trust. Yeah, right. like, I'm just going to be myself and, and show my true colors. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like you said, it's the same thing with adults. But the, the root of that behavior is not that we want to be fake. It's that we feel anxious of what would happen if we, tr- if we show our true selves. Right. When you go to your job for the first time, it's not that I want to be fake, I want to show off, I just want to protect myself because I don't know if these people are safe enough to handle my true self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as parents, it's almost like you were saying, you get excited when some of your foster children begin to show these behaviors because you know that they're building trust with you. So as parents, it's almost like, you know, it's frustrating as it can be it's like a positive sign you're like oh they trust me mm-hmm. there's a connection there so it's it's just having a little bit more empathy towards their reaction and, and understanding that yes if you were a brand new parent let's say you don't have any children you just gave birth any bits of advice for new parents that are trying to figure it out like where should they begin what should they start with how should they begin to navigate this because if you have a couple children or like someone in your situation or maybe if you're a caregiver at a daycare where you've seen these type of behaviors over and over and you're educated in it you have a better point of view but if you're a new parent and you're just like what the f is happening here i have like what is going on where would you tell them to begin i started with education let me tell you the backstory. When I received my first child in foster care, I wasn't trained at the time. I wasn't trained in behaviors. I wasn't trained in behavioral health. I wasn't a, prof- a professional at the time, a behavioral health professional. So that's when things started to change in my house, when I accessed help and when it started getting my parenting education. 
And now let's say that you're like, I'll figure it out as I go. But if you're somebody that wants more of that education, what are some good places to begin? Okay. Um, maybe I'm biased, but for me, the best place is my TikTok, my Instagram at Heimfight Club. <laughs> and then you have a couple courses that you offer as well. No, I have one course. It is an online program. It's called the Parenting with Understanding Program. In that program, I equip parents with the skill to know what their children communicate through their behaviors. Remember the five basic needs? I equip parents with that skill of knowing what that need is and behavior intervention skills. So once they know what the need is, what to do with the behavior that the need communicates. That's when you see real transformation because I see parents all over the place nowadays. There are many parenting accounts out there, including mine, and they get little bits and pieces from here, from there, and they still try to apply on their children without understanding what their children really need. And then they come to me saying, these tips don't work. And it is because they're trying to apply tips on a child that they don't understand. It is like having a recipe card for a good cheesecake and having all the ingredients, but not having the instructions on how to make it the same thing. When you gain the skill to know what they need, paired up with behavior intervention skills, that's when you see, that's when you start to see real transformation in your house with your children. And we'll link your course for everyone in the show notes also. And then yes. let's say that you feel like you begin to get this under control and you're beginning to see changes, what are some of the telltale signs that you are on the right path and that you're doing a good job parenting? And it's, it's not because your children's behavior changes, but it's you're changing your own behavior to match your children. So what are some of those signs that you see? It, it is a correlation because I think as you change your behavior, your children's behaviors change as well. The dynamic changes because it is a, it is a relationship. That's what we're building here, a relationship. Um, that's what traditional parenting doesn't come with. Somehow, it is more like, a, I demand you give me. Like I, it, the most common question I get everywhere, on my DMs, on my emails, on my consultations, is how can I get my children to do whatever they want? So it is always very parent-focused. What do I need from my children? When we change the perspective from what do I need from them to what do they need from me, that's when things start to change. That's when things start to change. When, you, when they know, when our children know that we are thinking about their needs, they're going to, as well, to correlate that to us and helping us with what we need as well. So it is a relationship. It ends up being a win-win, mm -hmm. basically. <laughs> it is a win-win, yes. My last question is, I've seen this a lot. I love this idea. I think it's so important. And it's something that I want to start doing with our son, who's two and a half. I think he could probably begin to pick this up but uh, having your child speak positive affirmations about themselves and like looking in the mirror saying positive affirmations giving themselves that boost of confidence and building up who they are where should parents begin with that our words become 
our children's inner voice. Whatever you pour on them is going to come back to you. That's why the five more minutes is coming back to you. Whatever you pour on them, anything that is, is going to come back on you. For example, spanking. <laughs> if, you, if you spank them, guess what's going to come back to you, right? Yikes. Yeah. Or the same thing with the positive things. If, if you speak life to them, if you speak positively uh, to them and about them to other people, they're going to start speaking positively about their own themselves yes is there a certain age that you think it's appropriate to begin like if they look in the mirror and say it or is it just that's just how you live your life and they pick up on it as they go right now I don't have a ritual of like every night we we stand on the mirror and we say how great we are but all day I'm talking to them and I say how how courageous and how kind and amazing they are. And they repeat that to themselves and they repeat that, that to each other and they repeat that to me. <laughs> so that is just so have to, to speak it and they will speak it back to themselves and to other people. All right. So I know I said it was my last question, but we just touched on something that I feel is really important. Now, there are parents out there and... I don't like to judge. It's just not my personal choice, but there are parents out there who spank or use force in some way with their children. So if there are parents that choose that option, is that something that you think is ever effective or have you only see it ever be ineffective? I don't speak for myself. I speak for research. There is a lot of research that says that it is not just ineffective, but it is harmful. Um, let me tell you something, like if you're asking me about my opinion, for some reason, the parent-child relationship is the only relationship in the world that somehow hitting is accepted. I've never seen any other relationship between husband and wife or between spouses, between boss and employee uh, between neighbors I've never seen any other relationship where hitting hitting somebody is acceptable but the parent-child relationship and I don't know why it's such a good point and like you said if you choose to engage in that certain behavior you can expect that behavior to come back like it doesn't just it manifests mm -hmm. itself in other ways. I mean, if you're using physical force, it probably will come back in another way. If, mm -hmm. if a child's being hit, they might hit other kids yeah. or they might hit you, whatever it may be. And it, it's like the same thing with the positive affirmations. If you're speaking positively to your child, approaching them gently, they're going to go out and speak positively and approach the world gently. Mm -hmm. And they work, they start to learn their, their physical boundaries as well. Like children that are spanked are less likely to know what their physical boundaries is when on the street somebody wants to abuse them or touch them the wrong way because they don't know what appropriate touch is because they're not getting it. Kind of like the dentist scenario mm -hmm. too. It's like that's not common for people to be like, yeah. touching and messing around mm -hmm. inside of your mouth right so like of course that would be alarming for a young child to go to the dentist and have that experience 
with all of this, what is the key takeaway that you would want to leave for the audience? My key takeaway is that behavior is communication. Behavior is not a sign of that uh, my children are bad or you're bad as a parent. It's just communication. I have parenting skills. I have a lot of training on behavior intervention. And still, yesterday, my son had a 40-minute meltdown. <laughs> it wasn't because I couldn't handle it or, or I was a bad mom or I didn't have the skills or he was a bad child. It was just the reaction to an unmet need. Behavior is the communication of a need. If you know what the need is, and if you know how to meet that need according to the behavior, that's when you're going to see change in your house. And we touched on this a little bit, but what are some of your favorite resources that you would recommend to the audience? I already said it earlier in this interview, the five love languages of children. If anything, learn your child's five love language. Your child's love language. Edit that one out. <laughs> if anything, if anything, learn about your child's love language, how he likes to receive and give love. And this is important, especially when it comes to behavior intervention, because there are three parts of the brain. There is the survival part of the brain, the emotional part of the brain, and the logical thinking. You cannot access logical thinking if, you cannot, if you're not accessing before that the emotional part of the brain. And for you to successfully access that area of, of your child's brain, you need to know what his love language is. And who is the author again? Gary Chapman. Okay, we'll link that in the show notes as well for everyone. And where can everyone find you if they're interested in learning more? At High Impact Club, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. All right. All right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, Marcelo. It was so wonderful to have you on. Of course, I'll keep following along, mm -hmm. consuming all the amazing TikTok content that you put out there. Mm -hmm. But we thank you. This episode, I know, is something that's going to go a long way for our audience. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Take care. Thank you. Hey there, Vibe Hive babes. If this podcast has brought you any value, please rate and review on your favorite listening platform. And if you're feeling really generous, share with a friend. Visit us at elevatethevibe.co for show notes on this episode and previous episodes. This podcast is intended to educate, entertain, and inspire. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions you may have. And as always, thank you for joining us to Elevate the Vibe.